As we continue working our way through the book of Psalms, I'll invite you to join me this morning in Psalm 108. Psalm 108, which we are told in the heading is a song, a psalm of David, and which reads as follows. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing. I will sing praises, even with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. And I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth. That your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand, and answer me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will exult. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Over Philistia I will shout aloud. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? Oh, give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we will do valiantly, and it is he who shall tread down our adversaries. Father, I pray now um, that as I speak, that through you I will do valiantly and will honor your name and your cause this morning, and I pray that you would Hear my prayer on behalf of your people gathered today that we will be blessed in hearing your word from this psalm, that we'll be encouraged and strengthened by it. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you were to read through the book of Psalms, a psalm or two a day, then when you came to Psalm 108, you might find yourself, especially if you were a careful reader, you might find yourself reading this psalm and saying to yourself, didn't I just read these same words a few weeks ago? My heart is steadfast, O God. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Where have I heard those words before? And if you did a little digging back through the psalms, or if you just did some digging in a study Bible or in a commentary, or looking at the cross-references in the margin or the center column of your Bible, if you did a little digging, you would soon discover that Psalm 108 is what we would call in musical terms a medley. You know what a medley is? A medley is when someone takes multiple songs or at least portions of multiple songs and melds them together into a single continuous piece. And that's what we have here in Psalm 108. This psalm is actually a compilation of portions from two other psalms. This psalm is a medley. Now, we don't know, of course, if the Israelites of old would have combined the psalm tunes, as is usually done in modern medleys, combining the tunes as well as the words, but the words of this psalm certainly fall into the category of medley because verses 1 through 5 are almost an exact quotation of the last five verses of Psalm 57. 
with only slight alterations. And then verses 6 through 13 quote almost verbatim the final eight verses of Psalm 60. And so the entire psalm comes really from two previous psalms. And so if you were reading through the psalms carefully, your memory would be correct when you found yourself wondering if perhaps you hadn't just recently read these very words in the weeks before. Psalm 108 contains very few new words and really no new thoughts that weren't already recorded in Psalms 57 and 60. And the question is why? Why this new standalone psalm that has very few new things added to it, comprising component parts of two other psalms that are already in the collection? How did this little medley come into existence, and why? Well, commentators have differing views on the answers to those questions, but the explanation that seems to make most sense to me is that this medley was probably put together somewhere around the time when the Jewish people were returning from exile near the end of the Old Testament. You'll remember, perhaps, from our studies in Jeremiah a few weeks ago, that God sent his Old Testament people into captivity in Babylon because of their rebellion against him. And you will remember that God promised to bring them out of their captivity after 70 years. And some commentators believe that this psalm was written during that time when, after 70 years in exile, it was time for the Jews to return home. And it makes sense, as one commentator, Arno Gabeline, points out, it makes sense that this psalm may have come from that period because Psalm 107, the previous psalm, comes from that period. We saw that on Wednesday night in Psalm 107, verse 3, how God had gathered his people from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They were coming home from exile. And it was around this same time some commentators believe that Psalm 108 was put together. And so the people have returned, or they're about to return, to the promised land, and they're looking for words with which they can adequately praise God for such deliverance, and also words which, with which they can voice to him their need for his help against those who will oppose them in their resettlement, and words with which they can express their confidence that God will give that help. And they find just the right words of praise nestled in the end of one of David's earlier psalms, what we now call Psalm 57, and they find the requisite words of prayer and of confidence just a few psalms over from there in what we call Psalm 60. And someone evidently had been reading those psalms and said, why don't we just take this excellent portion from Psalm 57 and this marvelous portion from Psalm 60 and combine them together into one psalm because they seem to speak exactly what we need to say in terms of our prayer and our confidence and our praise. I think that's probably the right explanation for how Psalm 108 came to be a standalone psalm on its own. The words, with the exception of a few minor alterations, are David's words. And thus the inscription at the top of the psalm, a psalm of David. But this particular combination of David's words belongs perhaps to the time when the Jews were returning from their 70 years captivity in Babylon. David wrote these words of praise and prayer and confidence on other occasions, facing other obstacles, looking forward to other victories, which things you can learn about in Psalm 57 and Psalm 60 if you read them. But the returning exiles find David's words, written for those other occasions, perfectly suited to their own situation. 
They find David's words perfectly suited to their own circumstances. In other words, they were using the Psalms just like we use them today. And just like we're going to use this Psalm today. The returning exiles read the Psalms in their original context and surely they understood what David was saying about God's help in his own day with his own trials and his own triumphs. But then they took David's words from his own day and they applied them to similar situations in their own lives. And they sang the words of the Psalms of old as their very own. And I think that's how we're supposed to make use of the Psalms today. We must surely, of course, seek to understand them in their original context, not wrench them out of it in order to make them mean whatever we want them to mean. That's why I'm spending all this time trying to explain how Psalm 108 came to be. But once we understand how the psalm came to be and exactly what it means, then we begin to think about how it applies to similar situations that we face in our own lives. And if we do that application well enough, well then we can begin to sing the words of the Psalms as our very own. We can begin to say the Lord is my shepherd. Create in me a clean heart, O God. My heart is steadfast, O God. And so on. And so before we even begin to look closely at the words of the Psalm itself, we've learned a lesson, I hope, from its origin. Namely, that it is right, it is good, and it is desirable that the Psalms, once we've understood them in their original context, be picked up in the modern day and made our very own. It's right that we sing them as our own words of praise and prayer and confidence to the Lord. I hope you've experienced that in these periodic studies in this book. And I hope Psalm 108 becomes your own today. So with that in mind... Let's begin now to look at what the psalm actually says. And the first thing we need to notice is just sheer praise in verses 1 through 5. And that's our first heading this morning, and it's quite a simple one. Praise. Verses 1 through 5 again. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing. I will sing praises even with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth. These are words of praise, and they are words of praise that we can learn from as we seek to praise God ourselves. David originally wrote those words, according to Psalm 57, quote, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Do you remember the scenario? Saul had been appointed king over the people of God, but he was a failure of a king. Not so much because he was a poor leader, not because he wasn't a very good strategist, but because he was ungodly. He didn't listen to the word of the Lord. And so God sent the prophet Samuel, to anoint young David to be king in Saul's place. And though it would be some time before David would actually sit on the throne, God blessed David and enabled him to slay the giant Goliath so that David was praised by the people. And they praised him even more loudly than they praised their king. And Saul's jealousy burned, and it became his great obsession to bring David's life down to the grave. And if you read Psalm 57, you find David hiding in a cave from Saul and crying out to the Lord for his help. But then in the last five verses of the psalm, which are quoted in the first five verses of this psalm, David praises the Lord. 
He's crying out for help, and then he, he just turns directions and begins to praise the Lord, maybe because of some specific deliverance that God has just granted him in the cave, or perhaps because he simply knew that God would deliver him, and he's thanking God in advance. And God did deliver David, didn't he? Saul, with all of his obsession for David's blood, and with all of his royal resources to carry out that obsession, never was able to put his spear through David's heart. God used the caves. God used Saul's own son. God used surely many other providences to enable David to be safe and to praise the Lord as he does here in verses 1 through 5. And then the returning Israelites read these words and surely remembered how God had protected David, the king, in times of old. And they found, as they were coming home from exile, that the words of David contained something for themselves. They had been hounded too, not by King Saul, but by an even more formidable and ferocious foe, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And unlike David, God had not allowed them to escape the wicked king's snares. But instead, the parents and the grandparents of the folks who would put together Psalm 108 had been carried away into exile. But now, after 70 years, just like with David, God was providing them safety. Now, after 70 years, it's time to come home. And after 70 years, in verses 1 through 5, it's time to sing. And I just want you to notice a few things about their singing. First of all, notice its quality. The quality of their singing. Just a few things. My heart is steadfast. Steadfast. I'm not wishy-washy about my faith. I don't just sing when my circumstances are rosy. I sing because I really do trust the Lord. My heart is steadfast. I will sing praises even with my soul. I'm not just mouthing the words. I'm not just going through the motions. My heart is in the singing as well as my lips. I will sing praises even with my soul. And then, awake, harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. Which probably means, as John MacArthur puts it in his commentary on Psalm 57, that the psalmist cannot wait until morning to praise the Lord for all of his blessings. He must wake up the dawn, personified, so that he may praise the Lord. Morning, hurry up and come. I'm going to go ahead and wake you up, morning, so that I can sing out as loud as I want and won't wake everybody else up around me. David can't wait to sing. The psalmist can't wait to sing. The exiles can't wait to sing. So not only are David and the exiles after him earnest in their praise, but they're eager for it as well, waking up with the Lord's praise in their hearts and on their lips. Now I say to you, brothers and sisters, our own praise ought to be of similar quality, oughtn't it? Steadfast. Praising the Lord, not merely based on the shifting sands of mood or circumstances, but praising Him always and from the soul and not merely from the lips and with an eagerness that actually looks forward to the chance to sing. This ought to be our heartbeat, both as it pertains to our individual and family worship and when we come together to sing praises in this place. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing, I will sing praises even with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. And then notice not only the quality of this praise, notice the audience. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Verse 3. To you, 
My praises are for your ears, God. Not just because I like to sing, not just because I enjoy this particular tune. I'm singing, first of all, for you. If we can remember that, it will affect the quality of our singing. If we learn to sing for God, then we'll sing earnestly and eagerly, even if singing is not normally our thing, or even if the songs or the style of music are not our favorites. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. I will sing praises to you, not merely to gratify my own personal likes and tastes. The audience, both for David and the exiles, was God. But then notice also that they had another secondary audience in mind as well. Verse 3, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. And I will sing praises to you among the nations. So their praise, yes, is primarily intended for the ears of God. But they also, as they sang, had in mind the Philistines and the Edomites, and the Babylonians, and whatever other non-Israelites might be listening to. They wanted them to hear God's praises. They wanted them to know how great was the God of Israel. They wanted them to know how it is God who rescues His people when they're hiding in a cave, or when they're exiled in a foreign land. Sometimes we may think that the Bible's international flavor... The Bible's emphasis on getting God's word and God's praise out beyond the confines of his own current followers. Sometimes we may think that idea originated really in the New Testament. But read the Psalms and other portions of the Old Testament as well. And you'll see many glimpses of God's desire that the nations would hear his word. That the nations would bow their knees to him. That the nations would sing his praise. And so here we find David and the returning exiles quoting his words. Saying that they want to sing God's praises among the nations. Now to be fair and to be accurate. The Old Testament saints did not always have the same idea about what that would look like. As we have today when we talk about God's praise among the nations. Sometimes they wanted to praise God among the nations as a shout of victory when God had triumphed over those nations in battle. And sometimes God intended for them to sing and to think that way. Sometimes God's plan was that his name be made great among the nations as he judged them. That seems to be, for instance, what the Israelites had in mind in verse 13. Through God we will do valiantly, and it is he who shall tread down our adversaries. The adversaries they mentioned in verse 9, the nations. So sometimes the Israelites wanted to sing God's praise among the nations as God judged them for their sin. But the fact remains that God wanted his glory displayed, not just in Israel, but among all the tribes and the nations of the earth. Sometimes he displayed that glory in judgment, and sometimes, and particularly in the gospel, he displays that glory in mercy. And some of the other psalms, like 67 and 117, make that plain too. But either way, whether in judgment or in mercy, God was concerned for his own praise among the nations. And remembering that Psalm 8 is a combination of two other psalms, It may well be that the singing of God's praises among the nations in verse 3 was of that second sort. Perhaps David indeed was saying there that he wants the nations to hear of the God that he extols in verse 4, the God of loving kindness and truth. But however we slice it, verse 3 makes it clear that both David and the exiles had an eye on the nations. They wanted God's fame to be spread beyond the borders of their own people group. 
And the Psalms in general often remind us that God's glory was never meant to be broadcast only on the local FM station, but on a satellite system that will reach every nook and cranny of the globe. And I hope we can resonate with that this morning. Even if we read Psalm 108 and conclude that perhaps the exiles didn't mean exactly what we would mean when we think about singing God's praises among the nations, even still we can take their concern that the Babylonians and the Edomites know what God has done for his people. We can take that concern and we can make those words our own and fill them with perhaps an even greater knowledge of God's missionary purposes than ever David or the returning Jews could have fathomed. What a privilege if God should call some of us to sing praises to him among the nations. What a privilege if God should call someone in this room to go to some far-off gospel-needy nation and teach the children there to sing Jesus Loves Me in their own language. Or teach some fledgling church out in the bush somewhere that doesn't have its own hymns yet to sing Amazing Grace or In Christ Alone in their mother tongue. I say to you, That if it was the heartbeat of David and of the returning exiles to sing God's praises among the nations, then how much more we, who live in the era of the new covenant, where the expansion of God's kingdom across every ethnic and national boundary is all the more clear. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. Some of you may be called to do just that, and the rest of you to pray and to support them when they go. And then thirdly, still thinking about the praise of the Israelites, in addition to the quality of it and the audience of it, notice also the reason for their praise. Let me just read to you verses 1 through 4, and you'll see the reason for their praise when we get to that fourth verse. My heart is steadfast, O God, I will sing. I will sing praises even with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. And I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great above the heavens. And your truth reaches to the skies. Why all the singing in verses 1 through 3? For or because your loving kindness is great above the heavens and your truth reaches to the skies. Some other versions translate truth there as faithfulness. And that may be the idea here. God is true to his word. He is faithful. Loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness and faithfulness. Think about it. God rescued David when he fled from Saul in the cave because he is a God of loving kindness and a God of faithfulness. He kept David safe because he loved David and because he is always faithful to his word. In this case, the word that David would be king. And if God's word is that David will be king, then God is not going to let David die in the cave with Saul pursuing him, is he? And because God loved David and because God was committed to be true to his word, David was not run through with Saul's spear. And we can say the same about the Israelites who put together this medley. God brought them out of Babylon because he loves his people. He cares about them. He has compassion on them. He does not, Psalm 103, keep his anger forever. And he brought them out of Babylon also because he is always true and faithful to his word. The word by which he had promised that he would restore their fortunes after 70 years. 
And so both David and the returning Israelites could say to God, I will sing praises to you for your loving kindness is great above the heavens and your truth reaches to the skies, your faithfulness. But what about us? What do we know about God's loving kindness and his faithfulness? Well, we know that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know God's love and faithfulness because of the cross. We know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we know that he who promised these things to us in the gospel is true to his word. He who promised is faithful. Hebrews chapter 10. Do you see? If David and the exiles could see God's love and praise God's love and God's faithfulness in those days when they only saw Christ in the shadows, how much more should we see and praise the love and faithfulness of God who know Jesus' name and who can read his life in the Gospels and who have a completed canon to explain him to us? They had the promises of Christ, but we have the fulfillment We have even more evidence than they did that God is true to his word. And we have an even greater grasp than they could of just how much it meant for God to give up his son for our sin. The love that was behind it. And so I say to you, if David could praise the Lord, and if the returning exiles could sing his name, how much more ought we who know Christ by name be able to say, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing. I will sing praises, even with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. And I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth. And so we learn something from the praise in Psalm 108. And hopefully, as I said earlier, we can make it our own. And hopefully we can do so not only as it relates to the praise of this psalm in verses 1 through 5, but also as it relates to the desperate prayer that we see in verse 6 and down in verses 10 through 12. Desperate prayer. That's the second of three headings this morning. And we see these cries to heaven mixed into these final eight verses, which are taken from Psalm 60. There's prayer, desperate prayer in verse 6, isn't there? That your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand, and answer me. Answer me. That's a word of desperation. And then there's desperate prayer also in verses 10 through 12. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? Oh, give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. There's a sense in in which these prayers are quite desperate, isn't there? Answer me, verse 6. Will you not go forth with our armies, verse 11? Deliverance by man is in vain, verse 12. Those are not the prayers of a person who thinks he's got everything under control. 
Rather, they're the cries of someone who knows that if God doesn't answer, if God doesn't go forth with their armies, if all they're left with is the strength that belongs to human beings in verse 12, then they're sunk. And evidently, that's how David felt when he wrote Psalm 60. That psalm was written when David was busy asserting himself against many other kingdoms, including the three that are mentioned here in verse 9, and establishing his dominance even beyond the borders of Israel and into the lands of the neighboring countries round about. You can read about this period of David's life in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And it reads like a series of scenes from Braveheart. David almost comes across as invincible against all his foes. But it was at that same time that he wrote these desperate words, confessing that he couldn't fight these battles alone and concerned that God had rejected him and his armies, verse 11. So perhaps amid all the great triumphs that we read about in 2 Samuel 8, David suffered some very startling setback. Maybe something like the earlier Israel defeat at Ai in the book of Joshua, the kind of defeat that David may never have expected. I don't know that for sure, but something had David troubled. Something had alerted him to his own weakness, so that mighty warrior as he was and great conquests that he was making, he had lost all confidence in mere human strength, and he was desperate for God. And if you think about it for a moment, you can see why the returning exile so many years later would have resonated with David's words. They were coming back to reclaim a land that they hadn't possessed for seven decades. And one writer, Tavis Bollinger, I think accurately suggests that they may have been anxious times for the returning Jews. How difficult might it be to reclaim the land or to pass through other territories like that of Edom, verse 10, along the way? Perhaps their neighbors had assumed that the Jews were never coming back and perhaps they wouldn't want them back when they heard they were coming. Maybe these are the sorts of fears that the Jews are facing as they headed home from exile. Indeed, if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see that those fears were founded. The Israelites, the exiles, were indeed harassed by their neighbors upon their return to the promised land. And so it wasn't going to be easy reclaiming this land after 70 years. But what did they do with their anxiety? Well, evidently, someone started thumbing through the Psalms and looking for one or other of the prayers of old that would match their own sense of neediness and distress. And they found Psalm 60, and they made a portion of it their own, just like you should do when you read the Psalms. Live long enough in this world, and you'll eventually run up against a situation in which it is obvious that deliverance by man is in vain. Live long enough in this world and you'll eventually cross a set of circumstances in which you realize that no person on earth can fix what ails you. It may be a physical ailment. It may be an emotional distress. It may be the pain of a bereavement. It may be a tremendous financial downturn. But live long enough in this world and you'll eventually come up against something that even Braveheart or King David cannot fix for you. And the question is, what will you do then? Will you just keep mustering your troops and reforming the lines and making more calls on the phone and scrolling further down the Google search results? Or will you make the one call that really matters in verse 6, that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and answer me? Or verse 12, oh, give us help 
against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. And I wonder if we'll learn that lesson even before those insurmountable obstacles come. Live long enough in this world and you'll eventually bump up against something that no one can fix. But live long enough in this word and you'll realize that ultimately everything in your life falls into that category. You can't fix any of it by yourself. God is the one who gives you the very air you breathe. He is the one, as we saw in Psalm 104, who puts the very food on your table. He is the one who enables you to tackle all those problems and fight all those battles that you once thought you were fighting in your own strength. Brothers and sisters, if we come to know ourselves and just how weak we really are and how deliverance by man is in vain, then we will be desperate. And if we come to know our God... The God whose loving kindness is great above the heavens and whose truth reaches to the skies, then we will be desperate in prayer. And then let me say this as well. If we come to know the loving kindness and the truth of God, then there will not only be desperation in our prayers, but there will be confidence as well. Confidence. And we see it in verses 7, 8, and 9, and then again in verse 13. As I said earlier, David's prayers in verses 6 and verses 10 through 12 are in one sense desperate. He knows that he can't fight these battles on his own. But there's another sense in which David's prayers are quite confident prayers. He knows that he will win the battle. Remember, he's warring with the Moabites and the Edomites and the Philistines and others in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And he knows that he can't defeat them on his own. So he prays desperately in verse 6. But then in verses 7 through 9, he already knows what is the Lord's answer. God has spoken in his holiness. I will exalt I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Over Philistia I will shout aloud. Did you hear it? Not only do Shechem and Sukkoth and Gilead belong to God, And not only are Manasseh and Ephraim and Judah his, in other words, not only are all these Israelite territories the Lord's, in verses 7 and 8, but so are the lands of Moab, Edom, and Philistia, in verse 9, with whom David is warring. And so though David is not confident in himself or in his armies, as he goes out against these foreign foes, he is confident that all these territories belong to his God. And so after earnest prayer in verses 10 through 12, he can say in verse 13, Through God we will do valiantly, and it is he who shall tread down our adversaries. And again, you can see how many years later the returning exiles would have gotten comfort from singing and praying these same words. Again, Arno Gabeline, the commentator, points this out in his commentary on This psalm. Here are the Israelites returning to the land that is rightfully theirs, to Shechem, to Sukkoth, to Gilead, to Ephraim, and Manasseh, and Judah. And when they return, they will be surrounded again, in verse 9, by the same difficult pagan neighbors. And Gabeline points out first how the Israelites would have anticipated God portioning out the land to his people once more, as is described in verse 7. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of 
of Sukkoth. This was God's land after all. And in these verses, Gabeline says, the Israelites see themselves entering in upon their inheritance. God is going to divide the land for them again. And then, commenting on verse 9, Gabeline also points out how the Jews would be confident that as they returned, God would take care of their enemies round about too. Quote, In a poetic way, Gabeline says, Moab is mentioned as a washpot, a figure of their deep humiliation. Over Edom, Israel will cast the shoe. Rosenmuller, who is a great Oriental scholar, shows that the Abyssinian kings and others cast a shoe upon anything as a sign of taking forcible possession. Another enemy of Israel, Philistia, will also be humiliated. Over them, Israel will shout in triumph. End of quote. Now, I think it's God and not Israel who's throwing shoes and shouting aloud in Psalm 108, but Gabeline's comments in verses 9 are helpful nonetheless. God will give the Israelites back their own land in verses 7 and 8, and he will even defeat their enemies around them, verse 9. And so, after repeating David's prayer in verse 12 for help against the adversary, the returning exiles can also repeat David's confidence in verse 13. Through God we will do valiantly, and it is he who shall tread down our adversaries. God will protect us when we get back to the promised land. Once again, they're taking David's words about David's own situation, and they're making them their own. And I say to you as we work toward a conclusion that we must do the same. The confidence that is expressed in verses 7, 8, and 9, and again in verse 13, must be our confidence too. For we worship the same God. And as we finish, let me just point out four areas of application in which these words of confidence apply to us. First of all, David's words of confidence apply when it comes to all those times in our life, which I mentioned earlier, when we just come to the end of our ropes and realize that there's no human solution for our problems. Whatever it may be, whether you're facing terminal cancer or insupportable depression or the death of a child or the breaking of a relationship or someone else's sin against you, whatever it may be that causes you to say deliverance by man is in vain, may God also give you strength to say through God, We will do valiantly. Deliverance by man is in vain, verse 12. And yet, verse 13, through God, we will do valiantly. That's one application of the confidence in this psalm to all those harrowing situations that you may face if you live long enough in this world. Another application of this confidence should be made as it relates to our own salvation, to Salvation from our own sin and to our release from the devil's clutches. Because when it comes to your salvation, to the forgiveness of your sins, to your being declared right with God and possessing eternal life, deliverance by man is in vain. Is it not? As Robert Lowry put it, nothing can for sin atone. Not of good that I have done. And so what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Deliverance by man is in vain. But the God of Psalm 108 in his Son is able to save. And the same is true when it comes to our being set free from the kingdom of darkness and from the clutches of our adversary, the devil. Deliverance by man is in vain. 
It is He, it is the Lord in verse 13, it is He who shall tread down our adversaries. It is Jesus whose heel has crushed the serpent's head. And if you belong to Him, the God-man, you will do valiantly in your stand against the schemes of the devil. And then let me say that the confidence in this psalm applies also to the cause of world mission. World mission. As I alluded to earlier, the Israelites... When they thought of God's dealings with their adversaries, the Moabites and the Philistines and so on, the Israelites weren't always thinking about God winning those people over by His grace. I don't think that's what they had in mind when they sang about these foreigners in verses 9 through 13. And yet, we also said that we who live in the era of the New Covenant have a different perspective on these things. We understand that God's purpose in the world today is to conquer the nations and to bring them to bow at his feet, not with David's battle axe, but with the sword, as Keith Getty and Stuart Townend have put it, the sword which makes the wounded whole. God has purposed in the world today to conquer the nations with the healing balm of the gospel. This is how we are to extend the borders of God's kingdom today. And as we think about the call to do that, it can seem daunting, can it? We are like the Israelites when they were returning from exile and weren't sure from a human perspective how they were going to be received. What are the Edomites going to think of us when we show up after 70 years? And what are these peoples going to think of us when we show up to share the gospel with them? Well, it's helpful to remember from verse 9 that Moab, Philistia, Edom, and every other patch of ground on this planet belong to God. And just as he can shout over them in judgment, verse 9, he can also sing over them with good news and subdue them willingly at the feet of Jesus. And so I say to you, this psalm gives us great confidence to go out and sing God's praises among the nations. And finally, let me say this psalm gives us great confidence when it is time for us to go home. That's what the Jews were doing when they put together this medley of Psalms 57 and 60, right? They were going home. They were going to the promised land. They were crossing the Jordan to a land flowing with milk and honey. And the crossing of that border, as we said, was a little bit frightening to them. And they couldn't bear the thought of going alone. Many of the same feelings we may have about our own going home were surely present in the trembling hearts of the Israelites. What will it be on the other side of that river? Will I make it safely across? How painful will the journey be? But at the end of the day, they made it across. God went forth with them just as they prayed that He would in verse 11. And when they got there, He had prepared a place for them just like He said in verse 7. And I say to you that the Lord Jesus will do the same for you. He will get you across the river of death. Samuel Rutherford, the famous Scottish pastor, said it beautifully. Be content to wade through the waters betwixt you and glory with Jesus, holding his hand fast, for he knoweth all the fords. Be content to wade through the waters between you and glory with Jesus, holding tightly to his hand because he knows all the ways across the river. And when you have crossed the river, when Jesus has led you over the fords, you will find, like the exiles returning of old, that he has already gone ahead of you and prepared for you a place. And so he says to 
those of you who know him. He says to those of you who know that those deep waters of death lie out in your future, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. As for the returning exiles so long ago, so also in the days of eternity, he will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth for his people. And you who belong to this Jesus by faith will finally be safely at home.